Good morning. Would you pray with me? Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, hear the prayers of your people everywhere as we pray for peace, for safety and sanity, for good health and holiness. May voices from all nations and races, all languages and cultures, rise in one chorus singing, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy and steadfast love endure forever. We pray for ourselves that you would forgive us our sins, especially our greed and idolatry, for we keep trying to make you in our own image. We pray for our nation that you would forgive our stubbornness and rebellion, our surplus of anger and dissension, our open hostility and conceit. We pray for our world, that the light of Christ Jesus would cover it from east to west and north to south, that the message of your love and the hope of salvation would come to every person in ways that they can understand so they can see the appealing side of Christian faith and not its ugly expressions of self-righteousness and heartless judgment. O oh God, give us hope. Do not let the light of our hearts be snuffed out by the foolishness or cruelties of others. Renew us in your spirit, strengthen us in grace. May every child of God become a smooth surface from which the beauty of Jesus is reflected to others. For it is by him and through him and for him that we offer our prayers today. Amen. The Lord be with you. Thought I was going to forget, didn't you? Uh, so did I. All right, we are in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. When we began our study in the book of Hebrews. Do you remember me saying that I love this book, that it's all about Jesus, and it's, it's kind of like a fifth gospel, only very different from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's different in this way, that those other four gospels follow Jesus from the human perspective um, and the view from earth. So it works for us. This is where we live, we're human, and we see Jesus in our world. Hebrews follows Jesus from heaven's perspective. It's the God's eye view of Jesus. And since we don't have the visions of heaven, uh, like the revelation, uh, we're, we're not familiar with that. We don't see what's going on in the kingdom of heaven while Jesus is exercising his ministry on earth. But reading Hebrews, it's as if we're looking at his life through the eyes of angels. We watch him as the Son of God takes on our flesh and blood because that's what we are. So he shares in the same. We watch as he is made like us in every way, as he is 
tempted like us, but without sin. We watch Jesus as the Son of God is made perfect through suffering and learns obedience through the things that he suffered. We watch him as he becomes a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, and then becomes the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant. We watch as he offers himself as a sacrifice for sin. And then we see him raised from the dead, entering heaven and having ministry there, ultimately exalted to the right hand of God. And all of this is going on mostly during his life on earth. But, but this is what heaven sees happening. It sees the development of Jesus as this human person bringing God into our world. In Hebrews, the, the meaning of Jesus' life is seen in a new depth and new dimensions. And as we, we go through this passage today, I want you to see the imprint of Jesus on these verses. I, I want his face to come through the scripture so that we can again see the love in his eyes, see um, the beauty of the person, and, and again see him from, from God's point of view, the son whom he loved and with whom he was well pleased. I cut off our study last week at verse 14. I just want to go back and read that. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We learned that the blood of Jesus does much more for us than the blood of sacrificial animals ever did for, for Israel, that it washes the, the window of our hearts. Uh, it purifies us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And the writer of Hebrews says it purifies our consciousness, which might be so cluttered with other things that we're only conscious of the material. And Jesus, through his, his sacrifice, has opened our eyes to the supernatural. Dead works, uh, in verse 14, can refer either to our behavior in the world or our behavior in our religious life. There can be dead works there too. Uh, either way, dead works are not how we reach the living God. And the contrast there is sharp. Verse 15 begins, therefore, which tells us that Jesus, our mediator, um, that it's by his sacrifice that he became our mediator. He's already mentioned in chapter 8, verse 6, that Jesus is uh, a mediator, that this is his ministry, a ministry of, of mediation. There was a well-known role in the social life of the first century Mediterranean world. 
and uh, scholars uh, in the area of social science have talked about it, there would be a, a middleman, an, an agent or a broker, if you will, who would work out agreements between two parties. And typically, it was working out an agreement between a wealthy person and a poor family so that the wealthy person took the poor under his or her wing and provided for them. And in turn, the family sang the praises of this uh, benevolent person who was so generous with them. Um, this is called a patron-client relationship. And Jesus makes reference to it when he talks to his disciples about hierarchy in the kingdom of God. And he tells them that, that those in authority in the world are called benefactors. They were. They were patrons, benefactors. The broker then worked between the patron and the client. The broker would look for a perfect match according to the, the patron's specifications. What kind of person are you looking for? Um, are you willing to uh, support a family that's on the verge of slavery? Or do you want to support someone who is an artisan, who's skilled, but doesn't have the wherewithal to develop their talent? Whatever it was. And then, and then the, the broker also wanted to make sure that the patron fit the client's specifications, though I doubt that there would be as many on that side. Jerome Negre wrote an interesting article in which he um, saw Jesus as a broker in the book of Hebrews. Now, I don't know that I would agree with everything that he says or that the book of Hebrews even has this in mind, though it's easy to imagine when, when this was such an important role in that culture at that time that it wouldn't at least have occurred to the writer of Hebrews. And Negre sees God, of course, as the patron and us as the clients. He says that brokers belong to the worlds of both patron and clients, and so fairly represents the interests of both. Well, I think that's a good way of describing a mediator. And Jesus is a mediator who lives in both God's world and our world. Jesus is the intersection of heaven and earth. Um, we can talk about the cross being X marks the spot, the, the, the crux of all heaven and earth. And that's where Jesus is. He's, he is that person in whom divinity touches humanity and humanity embraces divinity. Now, this new covenant, he's a mediator of a new covenant, has been the subject the writer's been working on ever since chapter 8. And what we learn here is that certain gifts are included in the covenant. Okay, we're rich. <laughs> we're rich because uh, the covenant has this treasure, this, this wealth. It contains the promise of an eternal inheritance. 
to those who are called. Well, when you read this verse, here's how I want you to think of the word called. I want you to think of it as receiving a notice from an attorney's office announcing the reading of a will. And because you've been included in that will, you want to go and find out what's in it for you. This is the question we ask now of the covenant. What is the inheritance? What's in it for me? Paul also talks about our inheritance in several places. In Romans chapter 8, there's a, a beautiful bit about us being the adopted sons and daughters of God. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, he's praying for the Ephesians, or rather, rather he's telling them what he prays for them, um, that they would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know God, and that having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Wow, that is so beautiful. We have this wonderful inheritance, and if only the eyes of our heart were enlightened. To me, this whole thing about having the spirit of wisdom and revelation, it's, it's having more insight than what's going to come to us through um, reasoning or our rational discourses. Insight that will come to us through the scripture only if our eyes are open. Paul wanted our eyes to be open to know the hope of this inheritance that we have. Did you know that you were um, the heir of great wealth, you have an inheritance. The writer now says that a death has occurred, a death that redeems. Now, we know about Jesus' death, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. Our transgressions have, have been forgiven, and we are redeemed. And redeemed has the, the connotation of purchasing back, um, that we really belong with, with God, we belong to God, we got away from Him, uh, became slaves, became addicts, and He purchased us back to Himself that we, so that we would be His again. And in purchasing us, he cleans us up, he forgives, he straightens us out, he puts new life in us, he, he makes us right with him. And, and I'll say it again, there's nothing in your life God does not want to redeem. Every sorrow, every sin, uh, every bad thought, every bad deed, every good thing, he wants to redeem all of you. Um, not all of you plural, all of you singular, you, I'm talking to you. Um, he wants to redeem you completely. But what the writer of Hebrews says here uh, about the death of Jesus is different. It's different and it's a little confusing. 
verse 26, I mean, pardon me, verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Well, that's, that's how wills work. But the writer is telling us that there's a new significance in the death of Jesus. The, the theme running through this section is the new covenant. And we have understood the covenant so far as a relationship bond between two people, um, like marriage and God's covenant with Israel uh, was ratified at Mount Sinai. That's where they took their vows. I will be your God. You will be my people. He gives them his, his covenant laws to help them maintain their part of the covenant. And, and this is their wedding. And then from now on, God sees himself as married to Israel. If they go after other gods, he calls it adultery. So, this, this covenant binds two people together in a relationship. But what is he saying about the covenant here? It, it's not the same thing. There's, there's been a deviation. William Barclay says, Now up to verse 16, the writer to the Hebrews has been using the Greek word diatheke, in the normal Christian sense of covenant. And then suddenly, with no explanation of what he is doing, he switches to the sense of a will. Well, that's a covenant, isn't it? Or more like a contract. Uh, today, a will is definitely written up by a contract. Um, a living will is oftentimes written up by an attorney to make sure uh, all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. So what happened to the covenant relationship when now we're talking about a covenant will? There are two Greek words that can translate into English as covenant. One is sunthike, uh, which is especially a relationship covenant. The other is diatheke, which is more flexible. It's a formal, it can be a formal contract. And it can be, diatheke can be used in both senses, as a relationship covenant, but also as a will. The writer is playing on this flexibility of the word diatheke. It's almost a pun that he's talking about our close relationship with God through covenant, and then he's talking about a will in which someone has to die for the will then to be processed. Jesus' death serves as a sacrifice, but now on another level, it, it serves as a necessity. Luke Johnson says, the shift, and he means the shift from covenant to will, the shift is not arbitrary because the new covenant is precisely about the inheritance. 
I mean, the whole reason God brings us into covenant relationship is because he has so much for us. And he wants us to inherit it. He wants, us, he wants to unload it on us. Our covenant includes our inheritance. But like a last will and testament, it's given to us, the inheritance is given to us only when the person who made the will dies. Jesus' death makes the will effective, the covenant will effective. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's because of, of passages like this that I took you on that horrific journey through the book of Leviticus before we started Hebrews. This, this background in Leviticus is so important for understanding what's going on here. The sacrificial ritual of worships, pardon me, the sacrificial ritual of Israel's worship involved basic elements, fire, the wood fuel for the fire, water for some of the purification rituals, an offering, and blood. Blood is the chief element. Now, the primary concern of Israel's worship was that it served to maintain their relationship with God. This meant atonement for sin, forgiveness of wrongdoing, purification when there's any defilement, restoration. There was a, a fellowship offering that would be shared by the priest, the worshiper, and God. And this was a celebration of their restoration to right interaction with God. There were thanksgiving offerings. There were offerings of consecration and there were rituals of renewal. All of this so that Israel could always live close to the heart of God, so, so that nothing uh, could become for them a, a block, a barrier. In this passage that the, the writer is developing for us, and he's really created kind of a hodgepodge of different sacrifices, different purification rituals. Um, the, the scarlet wool, the hyssop, the cedar wood, um, those were not part of um, the ritual of cleansing the temple. Those were for uh, cleansing someone who 
had touched a dead body or the leper. So, so he mixes things up here a bit, but his main concern is purification, that, that everything having to do with the covenant had to be made sacred. The tent, the altar, the, purifying the altar took a seven-day ritual. The priest, even their clothing, everything. The book of the covenant, even, um, that is that the law that Moses read to the people, uh, the sanctuary, all the furnishings in the sanctuary, and all the people. We're told here that he, he sprinkled blood uh, on the book and on the people to purify them. Blood was the primary agent for accomplishing all of this. The ritual use of blood is outside our comfort zone. I don't think I'm speaking just for himself. For himself. <laughs> Chuck is not speaking just for himself. It's like the royal uh, we, isn't it? As the queen says, we are not amused. Pardon me. The ritual use of blood is outside our comfort zone. I mean, if we are talking about a satanic ritual or some kind of pagan ritual, we go, oh yeah, you know, they do all kinds of weird things with blood. It's so foreign to us that most of us don't get it. And of course we don't. We live in a, a very different culture. Most of us, I'm hoping and thinking, don't slaughter um, the animals that become meat on our tables. What we need to know is that nothing, in Scripture, nothing is more valuable than life. Even animal life has value. That the life or the soul of a living creature is in its blood. Now, if, if we look at this physiologically, we're not going to get it. Um, Though there is a sense in which the blood that flows through our, our veins was the source of life on this planet. Um, but the point here is more spiritual, that all life belongs to God, and therefore blood is sacred. And, and people cannot just spill blood. Uh, not the blood of another human, or even the blood of an animal, without doing it in a prescribed way, so that God is not forgotten, but rather remembered. Again, if all life belongs to God, then in sacrifice, Israel offers a life that's not theirs to give. In Leviticus, God says through Moses, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life that is in it. God provides a life in place of that of the worshiper.
Okay. Some time ago, I watched a movie and I cannot recommend it to you because of the graphic violence. Talk about blood. Um, but it's, it uh, featured one of my favorite actors, Denzel Washington, and another favorite, uh, Christopher Walken. And the name of it was Man on Fire. Now, to me, and, and you may think less of me, <laughs> if you had any respect for me before, you may not after I say this, but Man on Fire, for all of its graphic violence, to me was a very spiritual movie. The climax of the movie was the salvation of a child. And Denzel Washington, who has been saved himself, is the rescuer, the savior of the child. And he's going from life into death as she is going from death into life. And they cross each other on a bridge. And they're on a bridge, they have their, their last encounter together. It's just, to me, it's a profoundly spiritual moment that it happens on a bridge, that it's about salvation and life and death, you know, someone giving their life for another, uh, to me is very meaningful. When Denzel Washington is negotiating with the drug lord who has kidnapped this child, when he's negotiating for the child's life, the drug lord tells him, a life for a life. You give your life and I'll let the child go back to her parents. A life for a life. And so that the Israelites would bring their living offering to the sanctuary. It's not their life to give. It's God's life. And he provides it for them so that instead of them taking the consequences of their sin, they're transferred to this victim which sheds its blood so that they can live. I'm glad we are past all of that. Um, I would not have... I mean, being who I am today with my sensibilities, I would not have liked to live at that time. Um, but that's, that's how it worked. And it's because this, this whole idea of covenant and inheritance and a will is going to come up as the critical point of our relationship with God today. And all of those things of the past were copies of the realities that have occurred for us. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23. Now, I know, I know that wasn't an adequate treatment of, of um, how the death of Jesus works, how the, how the cross is important, how the blood of Christ is significant. Uh, but we really don't have time for that, and I'm really not the one to to lay that out for you. I'm sort of a traditionalist when it comes to that. Verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I'm just going to turn back to Ephesians real quick because in... uh, (laughs) I'm going to turn back to Ephesians and get myself lost. Um, Paul talks about heavenly places in the book of Ephesians. And he says that, um, verse 5 of chapter 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus rose and entered these heavenly places. And uh, the writer of Hebrews is also talking about Jesus entering those heavenly places. He points out that the priest of the Old Testament did not enter the tent without blood, that it was part of their own purification. Uh, The high priest had to atone for his own sins on the day of Pentecost, pardon me, the day of atonement, and uh, uh, atone for the sins of the people. And again, uh, like last week, the writer draws contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Worship and the new worship. The first contrast is that in the old covenant they were working with copies versus the new covenant is dealing with the realities of heavenly things. That's where Jesus is priest, in the heavenly things, in in the spiritual. And you know, if if we think of that as up above the clouds or outside of our universe, We're thinking wrong. The heavenly places are here. They're just a different dimension. It's all around us. Heaven and earth in Scripture are not two different realities, like one's natural and one's supernatural. Heaven and earth encompass all of reality. And... Where God dwells, his dimension is a higher dimension than what we experience. And we don't have the organic technology to see into those heavenly realms. But it's here right now. It's near. It's not far away from you. It's right where you are. So the first contrast is the copies, the, the sanctuary, the rituals. These were all patterns of things, um, but the, re- the reality of it is where Jesus went. Jesus works with realities. He, 
He, he works with the kingdom of heaven. His kingdom, he said, is not of this world. Um, that's why his, his, um, his followers don't fight for, for him because they would be fighting a battle that's not his battle. Um, try to make Jesus' kingdom happen here on earth. It's not what we do, it's, it's what he does, and it's not, it's not of this world. Jesus' death and resurrection produced effects on earth and in heaven simultaneously. It's not like he, he did all of this work on earth, then died and went to heaven and did all this work. When he died on the cross, he purified heaven's holy places. The, the earth, this, this four-dimensional space of atonement and forgive, forgiveness, heaven, the extra-dimensional realm of God's presence. And, and both of them affected at the same time as Jesus ministered and died and rose again. One event happened in both places. Jesus, our mediator, belongs to both realms. That's, that's why Paul says there's one mediator between God and humans, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, there is no other person who, who shares both realities, who straddles heaven and earth. The second contrast is a contrast of repeatedly, like the earthly priest who had to offer sacrifices repeatedly, versus the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. The third contrast is that the priest would go into the sanctuary with blood not his own, whereas Jesus offered the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The, the writer jumps to the end here, doesn't he? He jumps to death and he jumps to the return of Jesus. The normal course of a human life is we live, we die once, then judgment. Jesus went the normal course of the human life in regard to dying once. But his death was not followed by judgment. His death was a judgment to bear the sins of many, we read. And also, unlike our experience, he will appear a second time. And that will be to complete the salvation of his people. It won't be to, to deal with sin. He's dealt with sin. He doesn't have to deal with that anymore. When he returns, it will be to complete the work he, he started in his people. And his people here are referred to those who are eagerly waiting for him. Just one word here. I'm not big on 
taking biblical prophecies and seeing them as fulfillment in today's world, rushing us to the apocalypse or to the last days or the end of times or to the day of the Lord, however you want to reference it. Um, of course, my dad was very much uh, concerned with these things. And with me, it just hasn't been an interest of mine. First of all, um, I saw a lot of misuse of, I'm not referring to my dad now, I'm referring to others. I saw a lot of misuse of scripture. I saw date setting that the day came and left and we weren't raptured. Um, and I saw people taking verses out of context and making them say things that they don't say. There, there's more about the future that we don't know than what we know. And the Bible is not explicit. The book of Revelation is anything but explicit. It's dreams and nightmares. It's, it's visions and metaphors and not at all easy to interpret wisely. And the people who are dogmatic about their interpretation of Revelation are simply wrong. Um, to um, not bring it to too sharp a point, but however, however, having said that, do not let go of what Paul called the blessed hope. This world is not going to evolve naturally and gradually into its own end. The scripture is very plain that at the end of, of days, God is going to intervene. And, and there's no question that it's, it's God stepping into human history saying, okay, I've had enough, it's over. It, it's time to bring the curtain down on all of this, okay? But our, our blessed hope, well, Paul tells us what it is in Titus. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, eagerly waiting. We can still get up every morning and first thing, look to the east to see if Jesus is coming again. We can still have that, that anticipation, that expectation, that hope and desire. And, and really it's a joy-filled desire. Um, like parents waiting for a son to come home from the war or lovers waiting for the opportunity to cross seas to be together again. We're waiting for Jesus, and, we're, and it's going to happen. And even though it's been so long, don't let go of that hope. It's too precious. It's too vital. It's too important. And Jesus is too important to us for us not to, to be looking forward to that day more than Christmas, more than going back to Disneyland, you know, more than our birthday. I mean, well, after a certain age, you Stop looking forward to those anyway. From the beginning of Hebrews, God has been speaking to us through Jesus. 
how he communicates with the world ever since the time of Jesus. Humans have always wanted to be religious. And it's like God said, okay, I'll give you a religion. And for hundreds of years, we tried to do it on our own and we failed. We took the religion he gave us and we worked at being right with God by following the rules. And we broke the rules. And then there were rules we didn't know about. And as soon as we learned about them, we realized we'd been breaking those rules too. But now we follow Jesus and we're right with God. Before we were working at the law to be right with God. Now Jesus makes us right with God and we're working the works of love. And the old law has been replaced by the love of Christ. This, this life we have in Jesus. Let me say something really clearly. You hold Jesus in your heart and mind. He, he said, abide in me and I'll abide in you. Jesus lives in you. He's in your thoughts. He's, he's in your consciousness. He's in your, your emotions, in your heart. Um, and he reveals himself to you. Hold on to that. Don't let anyone else in your head to tell you what Jesus thinks of you or what he wants from you, or you're not doing it right or you're not doing it enough. There's a circle, and you and Jesus are in that circle. Don't let anyone else in that circle, in between you and Christ, to tell you, well, you know, you're really supposed to be worshiping God on Saturday, not Sunday. Or you know, if you haven't been baptized, you're not really a Christian, you're not saved, or you know. Don't let anybody, anybody come between you and Jesus. And there are people who are trying to do this all the time. I mean, they, this has been going on forever. I suppose Jesus had it out with the scribes and the Pharisees because of what they did to people, the burdens they, they laid on them that had not come from God. Okay, so again, this life that you and I have in Jesus, it's solid. It, it's never going to wear out. It's not going to fail or disappear. It is an eternal redemption in verse 12. It is energized by the eternal spirit in verse 14. And it provides us with an eternal inheritance in verse 15. You see, it's, it's here now, and it's going to be here forever. Take it. Enjoy it. You, you can have it. It's yours. It's in the will. May God bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Enjoy the week. And enjoy the beauty of God's earth.
and the love of others and be, be doing good constantly. The world needs it. Brighten your corner of the world with creative beauty, goodness, love, and truth. Bye.